you're listening to the Hybrid Cloud Podcast, where the forecast here is always compelling as we discuss real-life challenges, successes, and stories from the journey to Hybrid Cloud with your host, Andre Tost. All right, welcome. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of the Hybrid Cloud Podcast. Our guest today is Andrew Haitley. Andrew is an IBM fellow and also the chief architect of IBM's public cloud, which obviously would give us lots to talk about. Thanks for coming, Andrew. Thanks, Andre. Awesome to be here today. So we'll start, like always, with introductions. So if you could give us some insight on kind of your background, how you got to be where you are today, and maybe tell us a bit more about what you're doing at IBM. I'm a Canadian engineer. Been with IBM now 23 years. Worked my entire career between the U.S., a couple of years in South Africa, and a whole lot of it sitting in planes going to various countries. So I identify with a very global community in terms of how I think about my career, how I think about IBM. Uh, I did join in 1999. Um, most of my career has been between the software group at IBM and now the cloud organization. Probably had a number of roles and been through, I would say, three or four major shifts in terms of the platform or the technologies involved. But if I pull the thread, I can usually find a kind of common wire through the whole thing from emerging web and internet technologies, web and mobile technology, to service-oriented architecture, uh, and that transformation, web services, and then open source. And over time, that became a foundation for a number of things that we build in cloud. And if I add it all up, I often tell people, I think cloud is just what we started in web services and SOA done right. It's been interesting, though, being an engineer and growing up in Canada, I didn't actually expect that my career would be so focused on enterprise software. Never thought I'd be doing data centers or hardware or any of those things. So it's a long way from where I started. But the more I look at it recently, I start to see the environmental aspect of my early career coming back and certainly a big part of what cloud and public cloud essentially is evolving into is, is a platform for efficiency. And there's a big environmental responsibility. Part of that that I think is is becoming a much bigger part of our future in the public cloud business. Okay, we'll get back to that. In fact, it reminds me of a conversation we had a previous episode with Vincent, who is working in storage. And you know, one of the, the things we took away from that episode was that he said that tape is having a comeback. And one of the reasons for why tape drives are in vogue right now is environmental concerns, electricity and energy consumption in general. And tapes are just much more efficient in that respect. So that was kind of an interesting aspect of it all. Yeah, not at all surprised there. It's not just driven by the desire to be more productive or the need to reach new clients or take advantage of new artificial intelligence, AI, or analytics capabilities. Underneath it all, there is a secondary factor, which is... Are we doing things in the efficient and socially responsible way? And I think that's an interesting additional metric or measurement that I look forward to being part of the solution to that. Okay. Before we go dig a little further into that, I have to ask because it's kind of unusual. And I think I remember you mentioning this to me before. We've obviously known each other for a long time, but you spent some time in South Africa. How did that happen? What did you do there? Yeah, so the original idea was we were going to expand a new type of market-specific software group solution lab, meaning we should look at solutions that are extremely specific to the market and partner with universities, partner with local business partners, our software vendors in the ecosystem. And while that was very much a part of the job, it was also interesting because it's a unique market 
that has all of the infrastructure demands, all of the technology demands, all of what you expect in any other market in the world. It just happens to be almost 12 hours flight from the places where most other people working on similar problems are. So it was a really dynamic experience in the sense that it was try to achieve exactly the same things, but do them in a way that is more resilient, certainly in a smaller population in terms of the technology skills and labor market. So there was always this interesting focus in that market on, can we sustain this? How do we sustain it? How do we do it independently? And in parallel, one of the group sponsors was an executive by the name of Willie Chu, who was my boss for a few years. And his role was to bring cloud technology to the forefront at the time in the software group. We hadn't even figured out that we were necessarily going to call it cloud yet. But in parallel, we were kind of looking at that and we were looking at a market that was often skills constrained. You couldn't have someone doing every role that you might have, say, in Europe or, or North America. So there was always a focus on when we do something with one of the banks there or the government or the customers, it's how will we maintain and sustain? So what I went over for thinking was a solutions dial actually turned into kind of a broader focus on skills, enablement, training, and being extremely selective in how we built things to make sure that we didn't bring in something that required such a unique skills background that only a few people in the world would know it. So you have to fly them in every time something went wrong or something needed specific debugging. So it was also the only tour, I would say, of, of my you know 23-year career where for two years I actually reported into a sales and distribution or S&D organization. And the customer awareness I got from that is kind of irreplaceable in terms of perspective. It was very eye-opening, always keeps you focused on value, making sure that what you deliver is respectful with respect to the customer's budget, and really making sure that what you land is going to be successful. Nothing ruins customer trust or relationship faster than giving them something that they can't successfully use and maintain. Probably the two most informative and formative years were right in the middle of my IBM career. That took me very much out of the engineering mentality and really made me focus on coming back into the U.S., coming back into research and development roles. Made me focus on making sure everything was consumable, everything was simple, everything was easy to maintain. And I think to a great extent, that is a lot of what we do focus on when we actually get our design work done properly in cloud. We spend a lot of time making sure that we're doing things in the simplest way possible so that we're not demanding a whole new unique skill profile to actually achieve what our customers want. So what it comes down to is that location and geography still matter, even in the day and age of cloud, because the challenges that you just talked about, I mean, they still exist today. It matters where you are. It still does. So let's actually take that as a trigger to go a bit more about hybrid cloud. So if you could maybe give us your definition, your elevator speech, if you will, about what do we mean when we say hybrid cloud? Yeah, sure. I mean, I look at almost anything we do in cloud as being hybrid. I don't think any particular solution exists on an island. The difference between using the terms public or private for me are always on understanding of the shared operations and shared responsibility model. Public means you're shifting a discrete set of things to a public cloud provider. Facilities, facilities control, facilities security, hardware lifecycle refresh, things like that. It means you've chosen a specific set of security responsibilities 
that you want the public cloud provider to fulfill. Whereas, you know, private, you may still use a number of as a service technologies to enhance and simplify running an on-premises or an environment on other clouds. So it may be evading the question a little bit, but I have yet to see an environment that is just truly now one way or the other. And it's an evolution of the enterprise data center to bring that data to new places, reach new markets, bring it to the mobile edge. That's put one set of pressures on the on-premises environment that has made it hybrid in the sense that it's now connected in more ways than it was when it was originally designed. And on the public side, it's, you know, no matter what we do, we're connecting into an edge solution or we're connecting back to an enterprise. And I would say when once you start taking the actual, like, who's responsible for what view of a solution, we always end up with this blend. We always end up with some set of processes or some set of responsibilities not sitting just on one person. I kind of view everything that we do as, is in some way a hybrid cloud deployment. And the variation or that blending of the models is a new level of flexibility we never had before. Taking advantage of public cloud capacity to do some batch processing or something like that involves a certain data access or a certain respect to data gravity, assuming some of what you want to work with was on-premises data. And it's becoming more rare for me to see, I would say, pure play models. Uh, there are some edge things, there are marketing campaigns, there are things that the vast majority of the code or the vast majority of the data starts with, stays with, and stays on a single public cloud provider. But over time, if that thing continues to run, whether it's a marketing campaign that then becomes a customer satisfaction campaign that then becomes part of the customer relationship, the longer something lives, I generally find the more hybrid it becomes because it becomes connected to other things. And it's that connecting processes together, connecting people, networks, and so forth over time drives a tendency that everything gets a little bit hybrid over time, uh, whether you're starting from on-premises or whether you were starting from something that was purely built on a public cloud model in the first place. Yeah, and that's actually in line with what others have talked about on this podcast and that we have a fairly broad definition of hybrid cloud and that what it basically comes down to that cloud computing is a way of doing IT that kind of goes across the board and involves architectural aspects, operational models and processes and roles and so forth, regardless of location, that I basically want to apply that style of cloud computing and the principles that it brings with it across the board, no matter if I have an older application or a brand new application, no matter if it runs on-prem or on the edge or in some public cloud or wherever it may run, right, that we're still kind of trying to apply the same principles. And the reason I brought that up is because obviously your baby is the IBM cloud. And I want to hear a bit more about that. But even within that is everything you do. And I don't know if you agree, everything you do is in its core also a hybrid cloud kind of activity. Yeah, I would say the vast majority of what we do is because we have a significant enterprise focus and even more so we have a regulated industries focus with IBM public cloud. There's this sort of phase of adoption from are we working on stuff that really matters in the public cloud with certain enterprises. And then as soon as you are working on stuff that matters, it becomes a much more specific discussion of how do you continue to honor your social contracts, your security contracts with that new shared operations model. And so I think the things that have made us unique, particularly in the last few years, as we've focused in even more on 
making sure our public cloud is suitable for sensitive data, critical data, mission critical data, regulated applications, and so forth. It's put us on this trajectory of being really, really clear and explicit and well-documented about how do we handle data? How do we honor contracts? How do we enforce security models? How do we enforce separation in cases where perhaps somebody who's operating the, the system in the data center we need to provide multiple controls to make sure that even though they're physically in the data center, they really don't have access to data and things like that. I think that focus on making sure we're excellent at handling sensitive, personal, private, regulated data that has really on the public cloud side forced us to look at that aspect of it and making sure that what was possible previously only with physical separation and dedicated data centers and run your own everything that we actually turn those into technical contracts and that we use what we're doing in automation, we use what we're doing in public cloud and say, well, if we can automate honoring all those contracts and we can measure that and verify it and prove it, that's actually a much more flexible model. But to get there, you're also connecting to things that weren't built that way. Even if someone says, we're going to do 90% of our deployments on public cloud, the challenge is you're still connecting to on-premises or other SaaS or other cloud environments. And you need to make sure that you understand that operation model and that security model. And you essentially have to start this zero trust, protect everybody from everybody type of contract and then make it more specific. It's not connect everything. And as long as the network can talk, everything's allowed. We've actually had to come up with much more sophisticated layered controls where we say by default, trust nothing. And then very specifically enable and allow what you want. And on the public cloud side, I think that's actually been easier because we aren't dealing with 20, 30, 40 years of sort of preconceived designs that were limited by how much CPU, how much network, how much bandwidth did you have 20 years ago when you came up with this particular generation of architecture. We kind of have a little bit of a luxury in public cloud that we can lean into a little more just sort of raw computing power. And we can be a little more, I would say, abstracted in our base security model and then layer on as much as we can justify or arguably afford. So, I mean, if I take a step back and just look at the fundamentals of what it means to be in a cloud, it comes with a level of expectation with respect to resilience and availability and those kinds of things. That is something that we were back in the old days, we were doing software. We're a software vendor, and that means we're trying to give you middleware and application servers and other things like that. And then customers were forced to operate those in their own data center and make sure they would adhere to their requirements with respect to availability. As soon as you move that in the cloud, that responsibility moves to the cloud provider, in this case, us or you, so to speak. So that's a broadening of the scope that you're looking at all of a sudden that goes into how do you set up a data center, like you mentioned earlier. So that must have been kind of a new field for you. How much of your time do you actually spend on infrastructure and basic software availability and resilience as opposed to the functional elements of what the services actually provide? Yeah, I would actually say a tremendous amount of my time is spent on those fundamentals of confidentiality, integrity, and particularly availability. That is very much core to our contract. I do remember times when 
I was in a team where we were building a service that we wanted to offer on IBM's cloud. And there was a process that basically, and I'm simplifying here, said, you need to get this by Andrew. If he doesn't agree, it's not going to go there no matter what you do. Yeah, I think I remember that. Over the last several years, I've, I've become either famous or infamous in certain circles for being the traffic copper enforcer, the final quality gate. But yeah, that is a big change. I mean, a, a lot of the engineers and the talent that we drew on in IBM came from our software business, came from a practice where operations was fully delegated. So a big part of our own transformation and becoming a cloud business and becoming a digital business was to, in some cases, reinvent processes. And in other cases, it was educating people to, to consider things they had never been responsible for and take that personal accountability on uh, availability and that notion of the primary value of any cloud service is secure operations. To some extent, what it does can be secondary. And that is a big, big mindset shift for a number of people, whether it's from the shrink wrap software days and it's like, how many bullets can I put on the back of the box? How many market competitive features can I list out? How can I look at you know everything else that's in the market and list five feature function reasons I'm better? And does it functionally do what's necessary from a service perspective? I mean, you have to pass that gate first, but from a customer expectation perspective, some of the early cloud services, it was easy because you were offering them something they just couldn't do themselves. But as most of our client bases become more dependent on cloud or more dependent on public cloud, the differentiation is, I need you to do this better than I could have done it myself. You know, your security practices, your security posture, your compliance posture, it needs to be better than anything I could have achieved myself because that's what every public cloud is leaning into. And so, you know, there's still an explosion of capabilities and the underlying productivity, if you kind of like can push the responsibility down to an infrastructure team or a platform team, it does free you up to work on new and cool things higher up in the stack. But the closer you are to being that sort of core data center infrastructure services provider, and this is something I feel every day, is a huge amount of the time is spent just making sure you remain really good at the basics. And no matter what you're trying to change, you cannot regress, right? You can't take a step backwards on your security responsibility. You can't drop a nine because you want to have availability because you want to add a new capability. So it is an interesting model and the bar never lowers. Sometimes when people aren't fully understanding how much this landscape has changed, I ask them to think back maybe five or 10 years. And if you're at home on the weekend doing something personal with maybe it's an investment firm or a bank account or any website you liked interacting with that wasn't a traditional web modern consumer technology, something that was enterprise, something you've been company you've had a 20 year relationship with. It was probably about five years ago where the bulk of them got rid of maintenance windows. And so that notion of your, whatever you're offering as a service or an application, you're just not allowed downtime anymore. And that has been a big transformation because before it was like, hey, I build this thing. It's got a great software architecture. It has clusters. It has this. It has, you know, multi-site availability, all that. But you've got to prove it every single day, every single weekend. You've got to find those right times in your application load cycle where you can step back and say, hey, the load has dropped just enough. I can perform this maintenance operation with no downtime. 
but it has become largely unacceptable to be a digital business that's unavailable at certain times of day. And so building those underlying building blocks properly as a public cloud provider, and then making that available so our customers can have that always on, always secure, always available kind of user experience. I don't know about you, but I, I, I've never enjoyed being told with maybe my bad sleeping habits that 2 a.m. is not an acceptable time for me to perform some kind of life maintenance or whatever it is that I'm trying to do. And I think that's just the default expectation now. I, I, I wouldn't want to tell somebody under 20. Exactly. That's why I'm thinking it's not considered special anymore, right? It's just considered normal. Even though, I mean, we all see the headlines every now and then things still break and where it seemingly is like the half the internet is down because somebody did something stupid. That still happens, probably always will. But for the most part, we've come a long way as an industry to do these things. Now, I want to talk about trends. One you mentioned, and that's something that IBM obviously is very focused on, is the trend towards specialized clouds, industry clouds, putting things on the edge, you know, running things in ways and places they haven't been run before. In general, though, what I wonder is, because another trend that I just read about the other day, and I don't know if it's for real, it's being talked about a lot, is what's called repatriation of software. That basically means we pushed everything into the cloud, but now we realize that wasn't maybe such a good idea because it turns out to be more expensive than we thought and there's regulations and so forth. So can we pull it back? Can we bring it back home, so to speak? And I guess I wonder, what's your opinion on how much of this journey to cloud and even more so into specialized clouds, how much of that is a one-way street that once you're in, you can't really get out of anymore? Got a couple of good questions on back in there. You sort of touched on three themes, if I heard it right. So one was the idea of what specialization in industry clouds mean. But that's also led to a whole bunch of new businesses that historically we didn't associate with cloud, whether it's financial services or insurance or government services. These are all industries that used to say cloud is not for us. We can't do cloud because we're different, right? And that has now morphed into, yes, we're doing cloud, but we need to do it in a special way. Yeah. So let me take the specialized industry one first. There's two reasons there's been some hesitation or some second guessing of the strategy with respect to repatriation. And you know, there's the performance cost side of it, but there's also the sovereignty trend that, that has certainly taken hold around the world. On the specialized in industry side, that partly came out of a recognition that certain industries felt that public cloud as it existed, you know, maybe five years ago, was not ever going to address some of the concerns. And generally, the main one was a security and reputational risk concern, that there are certain industries that only exist, and there are certain brands that only exist, because what they do is economically critical. They provide services, and their entire reason for being a large company or existing is that they do them in a very secure, very reliable, and very respectful way with respect to the economy that they're part of. They understand the criticality of being a bank and they understand that oversight is part of the job and they understand that they have all of these sort of contracts. And there's a certain seriousness to a number of these specialized industries and they can either state it in terms of the impact to their customers or the impact to their country. 
And what they were looking for were cloud providers who would turn around and say, we understand how important the work you do is. You're not some generic workload or some generic website that we're hosting. We understand that a good day for you is a day where you serve the community and the countries you're in and play that critical role. And in many cases, a good day is when no one really thinks about how dependent they are on those kind of industries or those functions. And that could be everything from travel transportation to healthcare, to government services, to banking, to finance. And they kind of looked at cloud and said, well, you don't fully understand what we run and the level of checks, balances, scrutiny, and oversight that are necessary for our industry. And once I would say, not just IBM, but I would say a number of clouds started to get that, there was a shift where they said, well, wait a minute, you're actually now providing those checks and balances, that security oversight, that transparency, that contract structure that we actually need and precision in the responsibility or shared operations model. And that shared operations model does differ from one industry to the next. What data is critical to protect? What level of scrutiny, what level of oversight is often industry unique. So certainly security is an overarching theme in that industry specialization. It's not the only theme. I would say the second theme is how do they need to be connected? How do they need to be connected to their citizens, their users, their constituents, their employees, and things like that. So I'd say just understanding the connectivity is a second piece of that specialization. And then to my earlier comment, once you understand those two things, there's always some unique function. Can you provide something that is a little more tuned, a more complete process, pre-built application building blocks, things that make implementing their code, implementing their applications, simpler pre-built, give them guardrails, patterns, landing zones, lots of terms we've used over the years for them. And that's what I think really the three things that need to kind of come together. It's an understanding of security and the oversight and transparency required. Second one is an understanding of their constituents and the difference between a citizen versus a customer and the kind of responsibility you have to them. And then the last piece is really understanding what kinds of applications they're building and whether you can pre-tune, pre-configure, or just take out the repetitive application building that's often necessary as they move things to different platforms. So that's been a bit of our focus is we think we do that well. We have the greater IBM that we can lean on and get that advice. We often talk about journey to cloud and the question being, is that a one-way street or can I back out of it or should I? Or what does it mean when people are now saying, I'm repatriating my workloads? So interestingly, some of the markets we work with require that there is always a backup plan. You can't be sole sourced. You can't depend on just one critical supplier anywhere in your supply chain. So we've actually spent a fair bit of time thinking about that repatriation problem, but not from just a, oh, this is costing too much or whatever. There is a certain necessity to think of, are we locking our customers in, in a way that actually prevents them from saying, I have a backup plan, not just a backup plan for the technology or a backup plan for the data center, but a backup plan from a supplier perspective. Am I critically dependent on a single supplier of technology? The nice thing, and this sort of comes from my previous job on being a, an open source advocate within IBM, that to some extent has been something we've leaned on pretty heavily and making sure in the middle of 
everything you do, defining your platform in the context of open source, the work we do with Red Hat, the work we do with OpenShift, that goes a long way to providing that safety net. And that safety net isn't just, hey, I may need to bring this back on premises because it performs poorly because I'm moving too much data back and forth, or I may need to bring this to a different data center because some new regulation is coming about some kind of data and it can't exist in that other country that I'm not allowed to operate or host it anymore. But the more you lean in on defining the platform that you code to in a way that the platform underneath you is reasonably portable and not controlled by one single commercial company. So we've kind of tried to find that blend between what must be independent. And I think open source is a great equalizer for that. It's a great enabler as well in terms of defining that interface between your data and your application code and the platform you run on. And should you run into one of those cases, it could be dissatisfaction, but more often than not, it's actually cost or performance. And the biggest one I think we often see is a new constraint on what data can flow. And maybe you can do that. And is it going to be simple? Possibly not. You know, you're kind of betting on capacity on both sides and, and equal capacity. But if you designed your system with some principles of portability in mind, and you leaned on something that can exist in multiple places, I think that's maybe something that wasn't always coded properly. If I look back 20 years or 30 years, we didn't code with independence and flexibility in mind. But more and more now, as we look at the concept of something like OpenShift as a platform and open programming model and open source programming model, that's actually a level of protection that I think is under leveraged and very powerful. But the last part of that that was kind of in your question as well, which is maybe what is driving that? I would say if it's cost performance, usually it's a misunderstanding of data flow and data gravity or a misunderstanding of data type. Hey, I thought I could move this to a public cloud, but it turns out to do that, it's always piping terabytes of data every few minutes back and forth to function properly. And that kind of says to me, well, this is one of the reasons there is always sort of a hybrid aspect to almost any modern application deployment. You sort of have to keep track of where is this data being accessed most often? And if you get that wrong in your design, you're using relatively expensive wide area or edge networks to move things around. And there's no way around getting that wrong. But the more we look at a platform model and that you should be able to do hybrid cloud and have a cloud-like experience with a small on-premises footprint, things like the satellite program that IBM is running, you know, other cloud providers have things like this as well. It's you want the ease of operation, the ease of update, the ease of management experience. But if your data gravity is such that moving it back and forth all the time will cost you too much, or some new constraint comes along in the future that says you cannot move that type of data without customer permission or regulatory constraints are coming more and more every day that says we want to make sure things stay within our legal jurisdiction. And that's the last kind of interesting part, which is not just specialized industry clouds, but the word sovereignty is getting used more and more in my day-to-day -day work, which is can we respect the boundaries that just exist in the world? Something that's considered mission critical usually is under the oversight of an economic region or a country. And if we show up and we propose a model that says your data will be replicated everywhere in the world without respect to the type of data and so forth, or your data can be accessed from anywhere in the world without proper controls, that's something that's made a lot of people sort of pause and say, wait, is this right? 
Now, I'm not in any way implying that you don't have a lot of control, access control, network control in public cloud. Arguably, all those things are programmable and you do have more control. But the legal jurisdictional boundary is something I think we're all becoming more aware of, which is there are so many ways you can access in a very connected world. You need to be extremely programmatic and explicit in the way you code your data boundaries. And we are seeing policy directives that we will have to programmatically respect that says under no condition should this piece of data or this system allow access or be resourced from some other place in the world. And the unfortunate thing is it's actually, in many cases, cybercrime and cybersecurity concerns that really woke us up to that. And the more connected we've become, the more you know nefarious things are happening around the world or unpleasant things happen around the world, and they make us more and more aware of how critical it is to protect ourselves. When you say we've made processes that used to be in-person things in, you know, whether it's banking or government services, and those are critical to the country, to the economy, of course, people are going to want to protect those things. Is the right answer reverse course entirely and start building small, inefficient data centers? I don't think so. I think it's on cloud and hybrid cloud companies to respect that kind of policy directive and figure out efficient ways to do that. Because I think if we reverse course the other way, we go back to what I would call wasteful data center building, building something that's underused. It only exists because we had to put a big network boundary and firewall and lock it down to physical buildings. I think our job is to figure out the right way to achieve all those goals you just listed and hopefully respect it with very transparent, very auditable, very easy to measure data-oriented boundaries, not data center or not network-oriented boundaries, but really make sure that we understand all the aspects of control, all the aspects of operations, all the security characteristics and privacy protection and ethical concerns that go with handling that kind of critical system and critical information. That's a good lead into what unfortunately will be my last question or last two questions, if you will, somewhat related. I feel like in this conversation, we kind of came full circle, right? Start out with some of the, the history, the background, kind of how do we get into cloud now? Now that we're here, now let's talk about kind of where do we go next and specifically. So what do you expect is going to happen over the next five years? And specifically, maybe you can give an example of something really cool and exciting that you're working on right now that makes it really fun to have your job. I think the next five years, we're going to see two very, very competing pressures. And if you ask me right now today, how are we going to balance those? I'll be honest. I don't know, but I love coming to work every day and working with people who rally around challenges this enormous. And the two competing pressures that I see is one, we need to lower our carbon footprint and our energy usage. That is a, a given for cost reasons, for environmental reasons, for all kinds of reasons. The growth of digital businesses, the expectation of always on, the expectation of access from anywhere, all of these things are not necessarily pushing us towards efficiency on the surface. So how do we build something like that that's always on, always secure, and also very sophisticated with respect to that particular data point you're accessing can only be changed under these very specific conditions of access. Someone in the country logged in in a particular way. All of those statements are computationally expensive. And the flip side of that is every customer we work with is determined from an environmental socially responsible or an ESG program perspective on reducing their carbon footprint using more renewable energy, 
being more respectful of their total power footprint. And I think the only way you balance those two things is through making environments incredibly dynamic against demand. Packaging workloads with very good data tagging, good constraints, so that they're always running in the most efficient place possible. And then you can back that up with a whole bunch of innovations in efficient data center design, massive consolidation onto extremely resilient systems, use the most efficient computing platform possible. If the data is not being accessed for a year at a time, but you still need to keep it around for regulatory reasons, back to Vincent's comment, you know, tape is still a great thing when it comes to massive efficiency. And if you understand when and why something is needed. What am I excited about is finding the large community of amazing engineers to work with every day who do not shy away from those kind of massive problems to in conflict sets of requirements that on the surface present themselves as almost unsolvable and working every day with the kind of people who show up and say, you know what, those actually aren't unsolvable and those problems aren't in conflict with each other. Those are actually problems if you describe them fully and you describe them better, actually potentially have the same solution. And I do think the same solution is, in many cases, better describing the real world characteristics that we want to respect. And even if we can't act on them dynamically today, we're not far from a future where those spare cycles of analysis, things like applying AI to operations itself, we will find ways to look at that extra information that extra description people have made about what they're trying to do and the principles they're trying to adhere to. And we will find ways to start instrumenting into those and start adapting the way we deploy, adapting the way we run. While we've made tremendous progress in dozens of years or dozen plus years now at this point of implementing the automation, running cloud and all of that, I think we're right at the beginning of it all coming together in a way that makes sense, in a way that actually simplifies the problem space and in a way that lets us combine two or three really difficult goals and actually put a dent in the problem. And so I'm pretty excited that for everything that we do in cloud, we're hopefully making the world just a little more efficient and a little more secure and a little more respectful of the importance of the kind of work and data processing we do every day. All right. Very well put. I think I'm going to leave it at that. That was actually kind of a good closing statement. So that just leaves me with uh, thanking you for sharing your insight with us today. That was great. All right. Thanks again, Andre. Always a pleasure. All right. With that, we're going to wrap up today's episode. Thank you all for coming and listening and hope to see you all soon. Bye-bye.